You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Mark. I'm Simon. Why do you guys start in that order, by the way? Because we've been trained to. Pecking order. <laughs> oh, pecking order. It's alphabetical, actually. Is it the it? order of most annoying to least annoying? That's probably true, Mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where does that put me, then? Well... I'll let you work that one out. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I'm not sure I like the way this conversation's going. <laughs> um, gentlemen, well done for really penetrating the male companion wow. topic last week. <laughs> I think. Can you guess who this is from yet? Reverend? No, possibly. but close. Doc Coom? Yes. I think the question of whether a male companion could have been as good as Sarah probably does hang less on the fact that he would have been a man and more on the fact that he would be the same sex as the Doctor. As with Jamie, I think that a male companion only really works if he's paired with a female companion. Just the Doctor with another guy would be unbalanced. There's something about the one man, the Doctor, and one woman pairing which works very well. Having said that, presumably the only difference in the companion getting stuck in the ducting in Ark in space is that the shoulders would be too wide rather than the hips. I was a little confused by JR saying that the Dr. Turlow relationship provided an interesting duology. What's a duology? Is that where Maureen Lippmann says in a pronounced Middle European accent, you get an ology, you're a scientist? Wow, that's one for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, regarding the lack of women as writers and directors in Doctor Who, the advent of a female Doctor would probably be disastrous for any male companion she might have. <laughs> the sort of writer mentality we have at the moment would think that a male companion to a female Doctor would have to be deliberately written as weak and stupid, because otherwise he would overshadow the female Doctor. Look how they had to write both Mickey and Rory as weak, hapless characters in order to make Rose and Amy appear confident and capable, if only by comparison. That's how TV writers think, unfortunately. If you have to have a female doctor, he said while nervously scanning the skies for flying monkeys, <laughs> we, need to have an, we need to have an established infrastructure of regular female writers, directors and producers first, or the prospect would be nightmarish. Do we really want the Doctor to be written as a River Song character? Because I fear that that is what the current male writers would give us by default. As it is, even with a male Doctor, they look like insisting on any male companion being accompanied by a feisty female companion, which leaves us with the prospect of weak and drooping male members of the TARDIS crew. <laughs> Keep up the good work, Doc Whom deceased. A.K.A. <laughs> Castellan Spandex deceased. A.K.A. Chancellor Flavorsome, deceased. <laughs> A.K.A. Coordinator Engelbert, deceased. And Cardinal Bruhaha, deceased. No flowers by request. All donations, please, to the Coal Hill Home for Orphaned Podcasters. <laughs> I think he's just pining for the fjords. <laughs> Doc whom? Yeah. Pining for the fjords? Is he Norwegian? 
I think he might be. You can tell from the accent. Okay. You know, though, that brings us... We don't usually do news on this podcast, but there has been some news this week, and this podcast will be going out soon enough. Oh, yeah. Well, what's the news then, Mark? Well, it looks like there's a new companion. What? Mm. Yeah. And it's a bloke. Yeah. Does Lee not know this? (laughs) No, he's taking his headphones off. Uh Uh-oh. Was he? So shall I say what the news is? Yeah, do it. Really freak him out. Well... Predictably, because I predicted this a while ago, I don't know if I did it to any of you guys, but it's another teacher from Coal Hill, isn't it? Ah, well, Simon, you predicted it would be a particular teacher. Oh, yeah, right. I was pretty close, though. Yeah, it was close enough. And it also makes complete sense, in a way, because that refers the series back to the very first series 50 years ago, where there were two teachers from Coal Hill School in the TARDIS. Yeah. But that's if this fella actually joins the TARDIS. It could be that he's just going to be a recurring character in any story set on 20th century, 21st century Earth. Mm. So it you could know, be more of a same. modern day Brig rather than a uh, Harry Sullivan. Yeah. Or a, you know, like a Jackie Tyler or a Mickey Smith, you know? Mm. Characters who are in all the stories set on contemporary Earth but who don't actually travel in the TARDIS. We'll have to wait and see. But they have advertised him as being a new regular, or semi-regular. I think they actually said semi-regular, didn't they? Does that mean he's like a tether to Earth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a Mickey. I mean, they actually said semi-regular, which doesn't... You know, they said semi-regular, and a load of people said new companion, but the term semi-regular doesn't exactly sing of companion to me. Mind you, wasn't Rory semi-regular at first? I think he was. He? Yeah, Rory was, but he wasn't a companion, uh, you know, for a certain amount of time. We'll just have to wait and see how it pans out. Yeah, we know this fellow's not in the first two episodes. Do we? <laughs> um, do we know which episode the DA Lek is going to be in? Do what? Sorry, I'm saying it like say like it. Lee can't spell. No, I um, <laughs> I'm so used to well. do it with my kids. <laughs> uh, you know, do we know which episode the Daleks going to be in? We just know they're going to be Daleks, don't we? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, this I don't usually follow spoilers that closely. No. I tend to look for who's writing stuff yeah. and who's directing stuff sometimes. Basically, the writers. Mm-hmm. And maybe and the cast as well. Mm, yeah, less so, really. I don't... As long as I know who the writers are, I don't really... But yeah, cast as well. Mm. And the thing is, Daleks, I think a lot of people seem to think that they were going to be in a two-part story. Mm. So, if that's the case, I would I would assume, looking at what's going on, that we're going back to a series where it's going to be three singles, a double, two more singles, a double, two more singles, and a double to finish. Something along those lines. Mm. You know, a bit more like Series 1. So I'm guessing if the Daleks are going to be in it, and fairly early, they'll probably be in Episodes 4 and 5. Mm. Very possibly. And writers-wise, we've got Gareth Roberts, haven't we? That's the only one I can think of. Who else? Well, Phil Ford's doing Episode 2. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, as Phil Ford's doing Episode 2, which is with a new Doctor... The second story is tends to be where the new Doctor beds in and gets his personality, you know, gets his character sorted out. Mm. 
A lot of people are suggesting that Phil Ford's taken over from Stephen Moffat at the end of the series. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Joe? What's your expert opinion? Uh, well, I'd like that to happen. I mean, everybody knows I like Stephen Moffat, but he's got to go sooner or later. And if anyone's going to take over from him, I think Phil Ford would be A, an excellent choice, and B, a really interesting choice as well. And, what, and what's your hunch as to what flavour he would give it? Well, he did Waters of Mars, all the stuff apart from the uh, Russell T. Davis stuff at the end, which spoiled it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's also done Wizards vs. Aliens and the Sarah Jane Adventures, right? Mm. So... I think in those terms, he'd be perfect because he would be a writer who would be able to maintain both the children's television aspect and the adventure aspect and the sort of heart and warmth aspect that the programme's really sort of embraced in the modern series. But by the same token, the fact that he did Waters of Mars means he can do dark and scary so I don't know whether we might get a version of Doctor Who that had that sort of continuity of the emotional aspect, but was maybe just a little bit scarier at the same time. Mm. Mm. Because, you know, with Russell T. Davis, it was, you know, slightly skewed more towards being a sort of slightly soapy character drama. With Stephen Moffat, it's been slightly skewed towards being a more fairy tale-ish, and slightly more sitcommy program, mm. you know, which, given where he came from, is no surprise. So, if you skewed it slightly more towards the horror aspects, but still kept very firmly in mind that it's a children's series, well, you know, I've said a number of times that the Russell T. Davis era reminded me a bit of Barry Letts and Terence Dix, and that the Stephen Moffat era reminds me of. Douglas Adams and Graham Williams, I don't know that if Phil Ford era might not skew slightly more towards Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes. Mm. So, Preferably not Eric Sayward, though. <laughs> no, oh no, it wouldn't be Eric <laughs> Sayward. I think it would be an excellent choice, and I'd be really interested to see. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, it, well, it's it, it would be a change, wouldn't it? It, absolutely uh, a change of flavour to it. Um be interesting to see whether he steers away from, I hate the, to use the word complex, because I don't think they're complex, but away from the complex arcs and storylines and, and all the all the way that the, the Moffat era has knitted together, whether he would sort of steer away from that and keep it quite simple, straight down the line, scary, fun, a big ride, you know. Well, yeah, I, I imagine that under Phil Ford that you'd have, you know, considerably less timey-wimey. Not that he... I mean, if you talk to Phil Ford or have heard interviews with him, you know, he loves that kind of stuff, but he doesn't necessarily write that kind of stuff. Mm. So, mm. you know, I can't imagine that he'd focus on that too much. I think he he's possibly one of those writers where story is everything, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. And also... I get the feeling that this year it's going to be slightly more emphasis towards straightforward stories and slightly more emphasis on the horror aspects anyway. Mm, mm. You know, Stephen Moffat has said that with the new Doctor, he's intending to sort of reset the tone of the programme 
a bit. And it'll still be Stephen Moffat, so it'll still be, you know, it'll still have that Stephen Moffat feel, but it might have less of a complicated, timey-wimey feel and more of a straightforward, sort of scary feel anyway. And, you know, if he did leave at the end of a series and Phil Ford took over, maybe that would be perfect because there might not be that big wrench that you sometimes get when the lead writer changes. If it, I mean, if, if Stephen Moffat literally does have the one series left to do, then... Um... That that surely is going to have an emphasis on how how it plays out anyway. If he thinks right, I've just got these thirteen episodes to do what I want to do, and then leave, it's going to be well, it's going to be a different game, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's if any of this is true. We don't know if this is true. No. Marky Mark. Yes, J R E J R E. Oh, that worked, didn't it? Jar Jar. You- yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> well, what do you think, Mark? Well, I think yeah, if it if that was the case, it would make it a more sort of self-contained season like we had previously under RTD. Um, I just so chuffed at the idea of having thirteen episodes back to back. I haven't minded the the split season, but I think it's mm. something to look forward to. I know it's going to take a while before we get to see anything, but. Um, yeah, I'm I'm quite hopeful, and um, I'm trying to think of the other writers that are being announced so far. So we've had Gareth Roberts, Phil Ford. Is there anyone else that's come forward yet, or not yet? Um. Oh, Frank Cottrell Boyce has been mentioned. Whether mm. he's actually on board or not, I'm not 100 percent sure. We've not seen yet. Uh, Gaiman's missing this se- season, isn't he? He's he's not doing one for this one, is he? It's, it's for the following, not isn't heard. it? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. But with those two, you know, they are both safe pairs of hands. They've got previous. They've both written really good episodes. So, yeah. It looks, Gareth looks Roberts promising. and Phil Ford. Yeah. I expect we'll get... Um, you know, Mark, I was actually asking you about what you might think about Phil Ford possibly taking over. But never mind. <laughs> um, I'm assuming Mark Gators will probably write one. Yeah. yeah. I, I think Neil that. Cross has hinted that he's going to be writing oh, one. I'm not sure whether he said it outright. I think he, I think he's pretty much confirmed he's writing one. Actually, I know we should, probably shouldn't plug other shows, but there was a very good interview with Phil Ford on uh, a recent RFS Radio Free Scarrow. I know. Uh, that's what prompted this conversation <laughs> in the first place. To be frank, yeah, so worth checking out. Okay, everybody turn off your podcast <laughs> and go and download the episode of Radio Free Scarrow with the Phil Ford interview in it. They can listen to both. <laughs> Actually, any conversation with Phil Ford's worth listening to. Because yeah, he, he comes does... across as a really nice guy. Yeah, but he also talks very down to earth. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people, when they get into, when they get to the point in the business where they need to be advertising their wares, as it were, because that's what you have to do. You know, when you are a writer who's got a new program out, you've got to advertise it. You don't tend to say, oh, well, you know, we made the best of it we could. It wasn't exactly what we wanted. And, you know, that's usually the truth. No project is ever going to be perfect. It's never going to quite live up to the writer's expectations. And there are always compromises to be made, especially in TV, where you don't have the budgets to go off and make feature films. So, you know, any production is always going to be 
you know, a compromise and a disappointment to a certain degree. But you can't say that as a writer. But when Phil Ford gets interviewed, rather than, you know, coming up with a few of the sort of stock phrases that TV writers will often use when they're trying to get past something that's perhaps a slightly sticky subject, he just says it as it is. And I, I absolutely love him for that. And he comes across I, as a real fan of the show as well. Yeah, he, you know, you could you just got this real sense that he was absolutely thrilled to be writing again. Mm. Is it? I mean, when he when he was talking about Sarah Jane and Wizards versus Aliens, and how it works with writers and showrunners, he didn't beat around the bush. He just said, you know, if somebody needs rewriting, you rewrite them. Mm. Mm. You know. It, Sorry, Simon, no, I cut you off. No, I was going to say it's this. Um, for some people, I can imagine becoming showrunner is a bit of a poison chalice, depending on your personality. If he has got this down-to-earth attitude, that's probably what it needs. Because, I mean, probably thanks to Russell T. Davis, it's become this job of you almost become the public face of the production of Doctor Who. Or you are. You literally have your head in the stocks, don't you? Um, and to have somebody who's quite down-to-earth who can basically t- talk the fans down... Or just be so, you know, have be fairly thick-skinned or just, you know, uh, just have a waterproof back where the stuff just slides off and you don't really listen. Then that's... Oh, he knows absolutely the kind of stick you'd get as a showrunner. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, it does need somebody who's, who knows what's going to happen there. I mean... Uh... Well, if you look at it, though, all the people who've written under Stephen Moffat lately have all been people who run shows. Phil Ford, Wizards vs. Aliens... Neil Cross, Luther, Mark Gatish, Sherlock. Toby Whithouse. Yeah, Chris Chibnall. They're, they're all people who run their own shows. Mm. So they all know what uh, you know what it entails, really. And, of course, that's why it makes it difficult to um, predict who might take over because as they've all got showrunning experience, you know, they're all <laughs> an easy choice to make, aren't they? Can you ever see a, a time again where you might get a, a young hopeful like Andrew Smith coming through? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think Stephen Moffat's been under a bit of pressure lately. Mm. And, you know, has, I think that's why he's chosen the writers he has, to try and avoid that. Because to do the anniversary season in the 50th mm. year, you've got to try and make sure it's perfect. Yeah. And you've got to try and avoid any kind of traps or anything that might waste your time unnecessarily because you've got to concentrate. You've got to really concentrate 100% all mm-hmm. the time. But having said that, you get somebody like Phil Ford or you get a, maybe a slightly more relaxed regime, shall we say, and I can easily see, you know, if you've got 12 episodes a year, say, we don't know how, how it's going to pan out from this point forwards, but I'd say 12 episodes a year is you know, a fairly reasonable presumption at this point. You've got 12 episodes a year. If you're taking on four of them, say, Mm -hmm. and you're putting another six or seven into the hands of experienced writers who you know you can trust, then you have time to bring in one or possibly two people who are less experienced and keep more of an eye on them. And if you're bringing them in early enough and give them plenty of time to come up with drafts and so on and so forth... You know, if you give them plenty of time to come up with a first draft so that you've still thereafter got plenty of time to iron out the wrinkles so that it's perfect, 
There's no reason why you shouldn't have young people coming through. I can't imagine that a completely untested writer might end up on the series, but, you know, by the same token, I don't see that it needs to stick to writers with so much experience. I think that was just what you needed to do for the anniversary, to be frank. So did you get the call then, JR? Well, that's what I've been trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they go out and randomly choose people, though, Lee. (laughs) No, but I've seen you camping out there. I know, they don't take... Let's uh, Let's not talk about JR camping. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> they don't take submissions either no. um, we've got a subject to get to because we've been talking for far too long without getting to the subject we've got I think there's oh, well, we've got an email from Al No so okay. shall we have the email from Al No and then we'll get into it mm-hmm. yeah go on him hello Al dear and the boys and JR I'm most of the way through the post-apocalypticast and having a right good time. Seeing as threads popped up in conversation, as it had to really, I thought I'd add something useless to your lives. Yes, threads is still almost as powerful as it used to be. I had nightmares for months after watching a copy I found in the library a couple of years back. It's the mixture of Barry Kez Hines and the constant objectivity of the filmmaking that really help it burrow into the marrow. Having said that, Threads came out in 1984, the year after The Day After, which Roger Scruton described in the Times as a particularly disgusting video nasty, larded with the moralising cant that one must expect from people who let their thoughts dwell upon the image of human suffering. That it should be banned goes without saying. Whilst not to everyone's taste, I happen to think that Steve Gutenberg can be amusing when he gets the right material, and yes, Threads did have a Radio Times cover. It was horrid. I'm hoping someone points out that the new series has remade Full Circle. You know, the one with King Arthur, the Doctor's Daughter and the Drowning Fish. Yours... (laughs) (laughs) Yours never going to get any sleep now-ish, Lee. Al. Threads scared the bejesus out of me as a kid. I remember seeing it at um, secondary school. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, that's something to put in front of the kids. Yep. I don't think I would have... uh, I don't think I would have right enjoyed that if I'd have been watching it in the classroom. Although, you know, to be honest, how old would I have been in 84? Probably about 14 or 15 when it was first on, and it was scary enough then. Were they supposed to be playing words and pictures at you, Mark, instead? They just put the (laughs) wrong wrong video in. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Lee. (laughs) Yeah, when he was at secondary school. Um... So, what is the subject of tonight's podcast? Season 14. <laughs> wow. Is it? <laughs> I have to... It is season 14. I hope so, oh, well done, Lee. Watching. Brilliant. <laughs> you know, we threw it out to our usual crowd on Facebook to get them to vote for the stories in their order of preference so that we could do them in... Uh, you know, from worst to best, as voted by our listeners. Mm -hmm. And they obliged. And so we have a list of stories from worst to best. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, before we get on to that, season 14, where does it stand in the pantheon of Doctor Who seasons? It's a bizarre one, isn't it? Because it's a game of two halves. Um, 
which is pretty obvious, I suppose. Well, actually, it's got a little bit in the middle as well. It's got a break as well. So you've got these three parts to it almost. It's it's quite a bizarre season, but I think it's... I'm asking if it's any good. I was about to say, I think it's all the stronger for it. It's really good. It's a good one. Yeah. It's one of the best. Well, it's one of the very, very, very best, yeah, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Marky Mark. It's no season 15, though, is it? <laughs> 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 well it's no actually we're talking about <laughs> I've just looked at the list we're talking about doing it in reverse order of you know mm. greatness and actually that's pretty much chronological order anyway <laughs> <laughs> would anybody like to guess uh, which story came in last out of the six what do you think I, I bet it's one that didn't deserve it guess the mask of Mandragora Indeed, so. Oh, good. Simon's. Yeah, but why is that good? <laughs> what that came in? That came in last. last. Jess's worst yeah. story. Yes, I watched it last week for the first time, and, and? I just found it very, very dull. Oh, but when you started watching it, you said how Tim Piggott Smith great it was. No, I said it was Tim Piggott Piggott Smith tastic. Go on. What did that mean then? It just meant it got Tim Piggott Smith in it. <laughs> oh, I see. You weren't making a comment about whether he or it were no, any good. No, oh no, he's great. He is a great actor. So I was, I was hoping for big things, but personally, I don't. It didn't gel in the way that I hoped it would. Um, and the the big nasty wasn't a particularly impressive big nasty. It was a fireball that went around and and hypnotized people, as far as I could tell. Oh yeah, but wasn't is it Norman Jones as? Um... Hieronymus, right. I was going to say Hieronymus Bosch then, <laughs> mm. as Hieronymus, wasn't he fantastic? Uh, but maybe I fell into this trap that we're always talking about, where I expected more of it than, in my head, all I had was this picture of the Target cover. I mean, I'm still yeah. I'm still calling it Mandragora. This is how late I am to the game on this. And um, Yeah, uh, well, they're doing the face of Eveal next. Not, <laughs> yeah, but I by no means think it's bad. It's it's just it just didn't grab me. Um, so that's a it's a personal thing. I don't think it's a particularly bad episode. It's a little bit drawn out in places, and and it's all quite you know hammer horror and um, uh, you know overacted as as that era era was. And there were certain times where I just said, "Oh, get on with your bloody um, whatever you people worshiping are doing. Just get on with it." Um, and it just sort of went on and on and on with lots of people going around in cloaks and stuff. And um, there are probably people throwing knives at the speakers as I talk. <laughs> well, they voted it last, Simon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I voted it in fourth or something. It was It's it's an odd one because it's got all yeah. the ingredients in it that should make it a classic. You know, you've got a historical set and you've got Elizabeth Sladen in it. There's Tom Baker. You've got a, quite an interesting concept with the helix, Mandragora helix, attaching itself to the uh, TARDIS and throwing itself into 15th century Italy. All these interesting, different kind of things. And a cult, you know, could have a cult in Doctor Who somewhere. Um, but for some reason, it kind of rambled a bit and it was a little bit, um, got a bit lost in places and was quite a bit of pattern. But there were some nice um, highlights in it and there were some interesting kind of reveals of, you know, uh, the TARDIS myth, for instance. Um, that was uh, revealed, wasn't it, about the. When you say there was languages. quite a lot of pattern, was that? Padding. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Not pattern. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I love, don't get me wrong, I. 
I say, don't get me wrong. No, no, you've got me absolutely right. But I did love the beginning with the helix where they landed in the helix. I love that because it was so weird and surreal when that thing went over the top. I just thought, oh, this is great. This is just really strange and odd. And it's like a human league video for you, isn't it? It was. It was. <laughs> I think. I think Port Merion is a really nice location as well for that sort of period setting. Yeah. Thought that worked quite well. Well, exactly. I mean, used for the prisoner, for goodness sake. Yeah. And, you know, and it's used for this this great Doctor Who idea of an episode. It just didn't gel well, I don't think. There's some epic fringes. <laughs> <laughs> I had one of those once. Jeez. Did you? What do you mean once? Oh, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> Stop it. I think it's great. I really like The Mask of Mandragora. I don't think it has, considering there's a sort of little electronic thingy popping around all over the place, I don't think it has quite the snap and the crackle in the dialogue to carry it. Mm. I think if I think if the dialogue was a little bit more colourful, like as if Robert Holmes had written it mm. perhaps, mm. I think it would have been a lot better thought of. But I really like it. Is, is this, I love that kind of. Is this Louis Marx that wrote this one? Is that right, Louis? Yeah. What did he? Guy do who wrote Planet of Evil, Planet of Giants, yeah, and um, Planet of the Day of the Daleks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't have enough snap. Didn't have enough crackle. Did it have any pop, pop, pop? I said the word pop before I got to snap and crackle, Mark. You may have missed that slightly. <laughs> I like the oxidized people, the people who've gone blue when they've been hit by it. They look like copper that oxidised, and they had a blue all over them. And I thought that was great, and that's the, one of those things that I'd probably, if I'd watched it as a kid, I'd, that's probably the one thing I would have remembered from that episode was the people where you couldn't see his face anymore. He was just like blue, crystalline stuff. Oh, I like everything about it. There's not a single thing about it I don't like. I just don't think it catches the imagination quite the way mm. some of the other stories in this season do. I think, I don't think it's the worst of the six stories. Mm. But, having said that, it's not certainly among the best of the six stories. I just happen to think that it's a fantastic set of six stories. And, you know, I think if you put The Mask of Mandragora in almost any other season, mm-hmm. yeah, it wouldn't work in any other season, but if you did put it in any other season, I think it would stand out as one of the greats. Yeah, any anywhere in the 80s, it'd still be... Pretty much as good as any of that, I expect. Yeah, but look at the following year. If you stuck Mask of, Ma- Mask of Mandragora in between um, Horror of Fang Rock and Image of the Fendal, instead of the Invisible Enemy, it would fit right in. Mm-hmm. And it's every bit as good as either of those two other stories. And then you wouldn't have the Invisible Enemy. Like a sore thumb in between two almost classics. I like that. <laughs> so you're saying it's as good as ha- Horror of Fang Rock? I think it is, Mark. Mm, nah. I don't think. <laughs> no. I don't think. No. I don't think Horror Fang Rog is any better than The Mask of Mandragora. Well, you're clearly wrong. Am I right? <laughs> I just think. Am I right in thinking that it's probably the most action, the most amount of action scenes that Tom Baker's done? I mean, that 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 was quite impressive. It's like all of a sudden, <laughs> the Doctor's jumping on horses and having sword fights and Stop. tripping people up and doing the whole the whole works, doing the whole John Pertwee. I guess it is. It's not a hundred miles removed from the android invasion, which isn't really mm. actiony, but in, but it's quite physical. He gets a bit in Seeds of Doom, doesn't he? So it's that kind of action, I think. 
I think what happens is you get a writer who's written for other doctors before and they perhaps just don't think, okay, don't put any physical stuff mm. in there. Oh, he gets to, uh, to use a scarf as well. I always think if you can use the scarf in an inventive way, it's a it's a bonus. That's probably what nudged it up to number four position. Of course, this is famously the story <laughs> where the whole how do um, how do we know what people are saying when we're in a foreign country story? You know, this is where that whole TARDIS translates comes from. Did you? Yeah, I think I said that. I didn't want to embarrass you there. Oh, I missed it. I missed it. <laughs> so I probably didn't make myself clear, but yes, yeah, it's, it, it does bring out um, an important kind of myth, uh, but part of the mythology rather uh, in this. Was there anything else in this episode that was quite important, or was it just that really? There's a control room at the start, which I don't still don't quite understand why they did it. What the wooden one? Yeah. Was that the first time it came on? Yeah. In that episode. Well, the plan was to move to that permanently, mm. Simon. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. But what happened was. Um, the wood warped. <laughs> so they used it for the year and then had to, go, had to go back to a regular one because they wouldn't have been able to afford to rebuild it at the start of every season, I guess. So they went back to one that they knew wouldn't warp. But I'm really glad they did. I'm a sucker for anything kind of Victorian looking and it does yeah. look great. The console's a bit rubbish, I suppose, if you think about the few mm. buttons he's got. But the general look of it is so yeah, kind of really HG nice. Wells, Jules Verne, it's gorgeous. And you can see where, you know, the designers for the Eighth Doctor and onwards had kind of... A little uh, bit steampunky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the next story is... This is the only bit that goes slightly out of um, sequence. Well, the next story is... Hand of Fear? No, the face of Evil. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think that's I said it's You did actually say that. I did say it was out of sequence, <laughs> and I did actually say what it was going to be about me, five yeah. minutes ago. We're all half asleep. Oh. Yeah. Um... I I don't know how this didn't end up bottom, quite frankly, because mm. it's so bizarre. And the last two episodes are, well, the last two episodes are quite a lot of very oddly costumed people standing around in corridors, not achieving very much. Mm. And, you know, it is way more ambitious than they ever had a hope of pulling off with giant spaceships in vast valleys and, you know, climbing up the Doctor's nose in a huge <laughs> portrait of the Doctor carved into a cliff face and all this kind of stuff. They were never in a million years going to get away with this. Mm. And, you know, it's only a year after Planet of Evil, and it's even called Face of Evil, and once again, it's Jungle Planet with invisible monsters. Yeah. It is a bit of a retread in that respect, isn't it? It is. A, it, is. it is a retread. It's. Um, I think it's a beautiful idea and a great concept that he go. He's been there before and he's messed yeah. it up, and it's you know it's technology gone mad. Uh, it's Hal, isn't it? It's this kind of thing, but um, and it's it's a great idea. And seeing for the first time, uh, I can't remember when I watched. I think it's in like early nineties when I saw it on B Sky B. Um, and I hadn't read the Target novel at that point either. And just seeing his face up there, I was thinking, who are they looking at? Well, why is it so such a... Because he didn't look like him, I didn't think. <laughs> and I was just sitting there for ages <laughs> thinking, who's that supposed to be? <laughs> yeah. It took me a while. And, oh, it's Tom Baker. Now I get the idea. So it's a good idea. But What they uh, should have done is put Big Bird's face up there. 
That would have been brilliant, wouldn't it? Yeah. Actually, that you would have been brilliant. You wouldn't have any problems climbing up his nose, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. I don't necessarily think people would have recognised him any better. <laughs> uh, that would be great. Or oh, William Hartnell's face. How cool would that have been? Yeah. But you I know think what, you all though? thought I was joking when I said I prefer season 15, didn't you? <laughs> oh. What with the invisible enemy and underworld and the invasion of time? Yeah, hell yeah. They're more fun. Right. Was Mark here? <laughs> <laughs> well, you say they're more fun, and then we're talking about Face of Evil. And, mm. well, you all know how I do like a bit of a mad story. Mm. And there's nothing madder than Face of Evil. And I just listed all the elements. Weirdly costumed blokes standing around in corridors in a giant spaceship in the middle of a vast valley behind a behind a cliff wall that has got the Doctor's face carved into it in invisible monsters in a giant jungle set. And the, what are they called, the hoarder, the test of the hoarder. Mm. And my deadly jelly baby's going to kill you. <laughs> I think Blokes oh, wearing gloves on their heads. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I do think. Um, oh, yeah, I do think this this kind of story would work quite nicely as a, a one-off in the Matt Smith era. Strangely enough, and I don't know why. I don't know what it is that's telling me that this would have worked. But so you would have used done. a deadly jammy dodger. Oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's that kind of madness. Mm. It's really clever, and well, it's not quite timey wimey, but the whole idea of you know, the spaceship crashing and, you know, the people on the spaceship splitting up into two groups and those two groups eventually over time devolving into two different sort of tribes. That, you know, that whole thing has kind of got a slightly timey-wimey feel to it in a way. It's got that, it's got that slightly left-field sort of esoteric kind of feel to it that you get with Stephen Moffat stories, I guess. And it's mad. You know, it's mad in a way that the Wedding of River Song is mad. Or, you know, the Big Bang is mad. It's got that kind of... It's completely logical, and everything in it makes sense, but at the same time, it's utterly riotously daft. So it's almost like the um, the mad cousin of, ironically, Full Circle, isn't it? In some respects. Yeah, yeah, it is. The mad cousin... <laughs> Is it? Was it? It wasn't based on Zardoz, was it? I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure, who knows? I'm sure that had a giant well kind of uh, face of Sean Connery <laughs> that you walked into. I was just thinking maybe they'd taken that inspiration from that, but I can't really remember Zardoz very well. So maybe that's a bad analogy. Philip well, Reeve did a um, short story for the the collection of eleven books that came out last year, and that was a Tom Baker one, and that kind of goes back over um, him arriving somewhere where he's not quite sure what's going on, but everyone's got it in for him because he's done something bad in the past. Um, it, oh. It's a headphones moment for Lee, by the way. He's taking his headphones off because he's in the <laughs> middle. Of, he's actually in the middle of reading the collected stories that uh, I, bought, I bought him for Christmas. Oh, bless. No offence, Mark. None taken. <laughs> <laughs> I have it somewhere. I can't think where I've put it. Ah, somewhere I've got it. I'll read it one day. Um, I nicked it. Going back I nicked the... it and gave it to Lee for Christmas. <laughs> oh, did you? That explains it. Cheap. That's fair enough. It's also Face of Evil's also got some great actors in, uh, you know, chamois leather. <laughs> well, Louise Jameson looks great with a bit of eye makeup, well, isn't she? Yeah. Lovely. Well, I'm talking about the fellas, really. You've got some great actors amongst Whatever the fellas. Whatever floats your boat, mate. <laughs> <laughs> 
the 21st century. Great actors, Mark. Oh, okay. It's 22nd century. Did I just hear yeah. a chihuahua? Uh, no. Oh. I don't know. Have you got a chihuahua there? I just heard a dog bark. Well, me and Mark, Mark and I, mm. rather, could hear a dog barking coming from your Skype feed just before we started recording. Oh, okay. This is true. Right. Are we really interrupting the podcast <laughs> yeah, talking about whether you can hear a dog, <laughs> a dog barking? barking. Um, <laughs> can we move on to the next story, please? No, no, I just want to talk about Leela's introduction, isn't it? Oh, so on. it's quite important, I think, uh, that uh, you know when she was introduced, she's she, straight away, I mean, I know Jael's going to agree with me, but she's such a great actress and is such a great character. Um, and straight uh, from the offset, I just really, really like her immediately. Um and it's a shame that apparently, you know, Tom and Leela didn't get on for those first few because it doesn't seem like that that's the case. And uh, I just think she's a, a really worthy companion to take over from Sarah Jane at that point. I do Agreed. I do like the way um, she enters the TARDIS. And it's, it's almost like um, <laughs> it's, it was like an animal has literally sneaked in the... You know, get out of there. What are you doing in there? Get off. Don't touch that. You know, really, really good. What Quite how she managed to dematerialise the TARDIS is another thing, but um, yeah, I like that. Well, she makes some really intelligent acting choices, to be honest. You know, people were often... It's, it's so easy to put in the script and the companion goes into the TARDIS and, you know, it's bigger on the inside. And these days, they're very careful about how they do it. Back then, they weren't always necessarily so careful, especially in the 60s. You quite often had companions walking into the TARDIS in the 60s and just going, yeah, right. <laughs> like, and Black Orchid. Look at the bit where yeah. the policemen go into the police box in Black mm, Orchid. Five and minutes later, they're almost flying it. Don't, yeah, barely bat an eyelid mm. that it's got this huge Jules Verne-esque spaceship on the inside of a police box. Mm. And Louise Jameson... You know, it would be so easy to put in front of the actress a script that says character goes inside, is boggle-eyed at the si- you know, the size of the TARDIS inside, and so on and so forth. And then the actress comes in and does the whole, oh, it's bigger on the inside, and does shock. Yeah. You know, something like shock. But Leela is an intelligent mm. savage. So instead of doing shock, Louise Jameson chooses to play that scene you know, true to the character. She doesn't go in and she's shocked. She goes in and she doesn't understand it, but she wants to understand it. Mm. You know, it's a completely different response than you'd get from, you know, say a policeman in Black Orchid. And also, you know, I think Tom's uh, trying to convince her that he's not a god, isn't he? All the way through, and then she walks into the TARDIS. Um, yeah. So it's, again, it's like, again, it's like, no, no, you are a god. This is weird. Um, yeah, great response. Do you want to go on to the next story now, then? Yeah. Do you want to take a guess at what it is? You know, the voting in this was so skewed. It was like the top three stories were basically everybody's number one, two, and three, <laughs> and the rest of their three stories had to duke it out hmm. between them. And basically, I don't think this story's any better than either of the other two, quite frankly. But there's one particular reason why people voted it top of the three, and that is... I'm guessing like it's going to be guess? the Hand of Fear. Yes, and what would be the reason why people voted that above Face of Evil and Mask of Mandragora? Sarah, Sarah Jane Smith. Jane's last story. Hmm. Yeah. And it, I thought it was the Andy, frankly, pa- the Andy Pandy outfit, isn't it? 
That's the only reason. Yeah. Well, there is that. <laughs> but frankly, is the hand of fear any better than you know the two stories either side of it? I think it. it I yeah. Go well, on. I think I prefer it of the three. I think I voted it higher than the other two, if I remember rightly. But as a story, yeah, I don't I think really, it's. I think it's quite fun. Yeah, I think I'm not going to disagree. I don't dislike it by any stretch of the imagination. I like all six stories in this season. But it's I never going to stand out as like one of my all-time favourite stories. But... Mm. I just don't see what Hand of Fear, apart from that final scene at the very end, I just don't <laughs> see that Hand of Fear is a better story than the other two. And in fact, I'd say both Face of Evil and Mask of Mandragora are better stories than the Hand of Fear. You know, much as I love a lot of Bob Baker and Dave Martin's other stuff, I don't think the Hand of Fear is one of their stronger stories. Mm, I don't... If I was voting in the same way as as you are, and if I was doing it purely on story, then yeah, I'd probably agree with you. But Hand of Fear for me has a huge iconic uh, place in my memory from when I was a child um, of the hand crawling around. And yes, obviously saying yeah. goodbye to Sarah Jane Smith as well. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of very, very good memories about it. And it's 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 just pure kids sci-fi with a disembodied hand going around with something, it's carry on screaming, you know, with something trying to re- regenerate itself. Um, Again, though, it's a story in two halves, mm. like the Face of Evil is, and like so many others, Stones of Blood is a mm. really good example mm, yeah. of a story in two halves. And, you know, it's one of those stories where you have two episodes in one place and then the entire story up sticks and goes somewhere else for the last two. The hand crawling around is only... In about 20 minutes of the story, isn't it? It starts twitching at the end of episode mm. one, and by the end of episode two, it's regenerated into, you know, uh, a full-sized person. But it's, an, it's another Scaroth. It's what people remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying, you know, that's the point I was coming to, is people really remember that, mm. even though that was just one Saturday, Yeah. you know, back in 1976. And the two episodes with... You know, the sort of regenerated Eldrad are pretty dull, if we're going to be completely honest about it. They're not They're not the best, are they? But um, I don't know. I mean, is, you're right about the Stones of Blood comparison. It, it's, got, it's very similar, isn't it? Uh, where you've got stones involved in prehistoric stuff and then they're off in the future. And I think it's probably similar kind of law, justice, you know, criminal type thing again, isn't it? Stones of Blood, second half and... Eldrad. Quite a few of the same things. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think this wins over Stones um, simply because it's got Sarah Jane and Tom, of course, and uh, there's a. It's also got a nuclear power station in it, which you know, it's another one of my kind of obsessions. Nuclear. Oh, I can't say the word. Stop it. <laughs> it's like that. It's got. An, it's like the guy. It's that, got a. Who's the chap of Starburst got... magazine podcast who can't say John Pertwee? He says John Pertwee. All the time. It's like I can't get a nuclear. I can't say it. But you know, it's a power station, Mark. All right. <laughs> and I used to love those as kids. I used to hang around outside, staring at them, going, "God, that's so." You always had this healthy glow about you, Lee, didn't you? <laughs> but you know, the hand of fear, ready brick, and power stations were very kind of John Pertwee esque as well. And I kind of liked all that business. Well, the Vaxos. Yeah, exactly. So, also written by. Oh yeah. The Bristol Boys. Yeah, there you are. Let's see. And in the hand of fear, when it looks like there's going to be a nuclear disaster, what is the local population's response? They hide behind a car. <laughs> Paint yourself white. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's not. Uh, I don't think Bob and Dave really quite did their homework on that one. <laughs> they you know really made a catchphrase, didn't they? Eh? Oh yes. Oh yeah. That, what was the catchphrase? Must live. That's it. Not a very good one, though, is it? <laughs> it's not as good as the two that came shortly afterwards. No, that's true. What really makes this story, and again, it's only in episode two, is Glenn Houston. Mm-hmm. The phone call he makes to his wife when he thinks he's going to die. Yeah. That is a really nice piece of writing mm. and a really, really nice piece of acting. Mm. More of that, please. Yeah. If only the two episodes that followed hadn't been such a letdown. And then, of course, the end, I guess, was probably a lot down to do, uh, you know, a lot to do with um, Elizabeth Sladen and Tom Baker as much as it was anything else. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, you get the, the impression they um, they work that out between them. It, yeah, yeah, it doesn't yeah, sound or feel. It doesn't sound or feel like Bob Holmes, uh, Bob Baker, and Dave Martin. Nor does mm-hmm. it sound or feel like Robert Holmes, Bob Holmes. So it, you know, it kind of sits apart from the rest of the story a bit. It's 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 brilliantly done. But as a kid, uh, as a kid, I was reading the tar- Target novel, or whatever. It was not so. Um, it, di- it didn't feel a good enough ending for Sarah Jane for some reason. It's like I was a bit disappointed because they didn't actually get. I don't like people not saying goodbye, so they didn't get to say goodbye properly. It was a weird thing. Um, so when sc- school reunion turned up, of course, I was punching in the air and going, "Yes, he gets to say hello and goodbye again." So yeah, it was weird. It's like unfinished business. Just dropping her off and buggering off to Gallifrey was. Uh, it's a bit harsh. I think that was the point, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I it well done. It's easy to say good- goodbye to somebody you don't care that much about and don't want to see again. Mm, yeah. Much easier to say goodbye to somebody you don't want to see again than it is to say goodbye to somebody you do want to see again. That's true. I suppose when you get all the really over-the-top goodbyes, that becomes a little bit kind of bleh. So this was... It was so yeah. well... It was really well done. Brilliantly done. Sarah Jane, uh, you know, Liz Slade in his acting. It's beautifully low-key. Uh, and it's all in the performances as well, so you're never going to get that from the book. In the book, low-key, you can't really pull it off. No. But you can do with a performance. And she had the owl. She had an owl in her hand. That's what I remember. And, and an Andy Pandy suit. Brilliant. <laughs> Anybody else with anything on hand of fear? Mm, no, it's, it's all about the hand and it's all about saying goodbye to... It's all about the hand and it's all about the fear. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the digits of death. Do you know, I the trouble with talking about season 14 is it is such a good season. These are such good stories. that Even though we've just done, normally when we talk about a season, you know, there'll be a lot of hit and miss. And that gives you more to talk about in a funny way, doesn't it? True, true. I just wonder if talking about season 14, well, what comes up next for a start? Who knows? These ne- and go back to the, the scene with Sarah Jane, uh, you know, with Sarah Jane Smith and the Doctor at the end of The Hand of Fear. You've got the bit where he says, I've been called to Gallifrey, I can't take you. And I always assumed that meant he didn't want to, wasn't prepared to, rather than physically couldn't. Because, let's be honest, physically couldn't. He just takes the TARDIS to Gallifrey and she's in it. She's there. Yeah. yeah. So a year later, when Leela gets to go there and people were saying, oh, that's a bit of a discrepancy. 
I'm just thinking, not that much of a discrepancy. No, I think it's just the danger aspect and, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. I think it's more along the lines of he doesn't want to risk her going and maybe he mm. just knows that it, the time's up in that kind of creepy time old way. And this is, okay, I'm going to do a Lee here and retcon it slightly. <laughs> but, of course, the thing about it is, in the Invasion of Time, he goes to Gallifrey on a sort of regular Doctor Who mission. There's trouble, he goes to sort the trouble out. You know, that's how he starts pretty much every story, right? So why wouldn't he have the companion with him then? In The Deadly Assassin, he gets the call to go to Gallifrey. That's why he drops Sarah Jane Smith off, because he's had the call. Not necessarily because he thinks it might be too dangerous, but because he thinks it might be too important, with a capital I. If you get the call, I mean, I'm assuming his way of thinking is, if you get the call, you go. And that's you, and not you and somebody else. Just you. Do you know what I'm saying there? Mm -hmm. Do you see the distinction I've made? Mm -hmm. So what story are we talking about next? What story came third? Talons? <laughs> Deadly Assassin. Of course it is. <laughs> um, oh, do you know, absolutely appalling ending. <laughs> the last five minutes of The Deadly Assassin, or, you know, the last seven minutes of The Deadly Assassin, are absolute poppycock. This is just a bit where it all explodes everywhere and the master falls into the harmony, is that right? Yeah, he just goes, you know, he just goes down a hole Which he's in the done, He does later on as well, uh, with the Eighth Doctor. Mm. But, um, yeah, you're right, that last bit, that's probably... I mean, I suppose there are some negatives you could throw in there. Um, you know, the fact that the Time Lord Society may not be to everybody's choosing, uh, the way it was depicted and things. But um, it, it's high up there, I think, mostly because of that Matrix sequence that everybody just seems to love, which yeah, I do, yeah. I do, I adore it. I absolutely adore it. It's one of my favourite things of Doctor Who of all time. So I, you know, but there are lots of bits around the Deadly Assassin which aren't actually that brilliant. Um, but it's still a very good episode, isn't it? Gosh. <laughs> oh, it's a classic. What can you do? It's venerated now, hated at the time, but venerated now. How hated was it then? Do you know? Um, it, it was the story that um, Jan Vincent Rudsky famously absolutely slated in the um, Doctor Who Appreciation Society magazine. Right. Uh, there's a really famous review of it that, um, you know, has gone down in fan history as way too uh, really, really get it wrong about a story almost. Mm-hmm. Is it just because of the, Was it because of the impact of the way that the time lords were being, you know, put on screen? Is that what it was? That they were doddery old men and not this all-powerful race that we saw in the war games. Yeah, people have always, you know, ever since fandom started, probably before, but you know, when they have records of since fandom started, people have always had a problem. With the idea of, uh, you know, the series changing and bringing in new things and not doing things the way they used to be. You know, uh, there's a, uh, there's a thing that amongst new people talking about the new series now is that 
if something refers back to continuity, it should refer back to the continuity that was established in the old series rather than anything that was redeveloped in the new series, which causes absolutely rubbish. You know, uh, there is a way of thinking that... I think I brought this up on the podcast before, about the pronunciation of metabilis or metabolis. And that is that if there's an old way of doing it, and there's a new way of doing it, the correct way, which some people would think is the old way, the original way, the correct way is actually the new way, because if something has changed, then the new version supersedes the old version. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? Mm. Yeah. So when Deadly Assassin came along, even though it seemed to contradict everything we knew about the Time Lords, let's be honest, we'd not really seen an awful lot of the Time Lords. We had one episode of them in um, the War Games, and that in itself was hardly much of a snapshot of Time Lord society, seen as it was a trial, and mm. you only got to see three of them. Mm. You didn't really get to see what the planet was like. You didn't get to see what the people were like. So it didn't really contradict anything from there. And then in the three doctors, you get a few scenes of them in a control room, mm. you know, yeah. up against the cosh. So you don't really get to see what the Time Lords are like there either. But in the meantime, Robert Holmes is one of those writers who, you know, if he gets an idea in his head, he can't help himself but keep coming back to that idea. And in Genesis of the Daleks, which I would assume his probably sole contribution towards was the establishing scene at the start where the Time Lord meets the Doctor on the surface of the planet Scara, right? Because Terry Nation had actually written something else. They had to change it after the Ark in Space became a four-part and a two-part story rather than the original six-part story. So Robert Holmes had to rewrite the beginning of Genesis of the Daleks. And what does he do? He writes the Time Lords as officious sort of civil servants mm -hmm. he, exactly as he wrote them in Terror of the Autons and exactly as he wrote the Doctor talking about them in The Brain of Morbius mm -hmm. and you know all this galactic ticket inspectors stuff that mm -hmm. kind of grown up since since Robert Holmes became an established part of the Doctor Who team in John Pertwee's last season when not only did he write the first story but for much of the rest of that series he was following Terence Dix around or even indeed doing Terence Dix's job while Terence Dix was setting up Moonbase 3 with Barry Letts. So from season 11 through to season 14 Robert Holmes has by and large been in charge of the stories or at the forefront of being in charge of the stories and he's just developed this theme in the background of the Time Lord's being officious civil servants and then finally he puts it on screen mm. and here it is deadly assassin and if you'd been concentrating on doctor who for the last few years you wouldn't have been as shocked as doctor who fans apparently were because you could have seen this coming yeah that's true you know when you look at them like you've just described yeah it's kind of like almost a natural thing that they become this this race that um, you know the society itself is, is is shown a lot in deadly assassins so we get to see them we get to see them being official uh, like they were in the you know in the sequence in the war games um, uh, but you also get this lovely kind of thing where he's talking to the camera is the journalist isn't it <laughs> and here we are mm. in the panopticon da, 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 uh, which is hilarious really and quite old-fashioned but you know it's nice to see that they do, they too have TV and societies that watch <laughs> TV. And 
I think it's it's fairly obvious. It's a massive analogy for the House of Commons, surely. Yeah. Yeah. And the House of mm. Lords. Yes, absolutely. Um, which makes it makes perfect sense, and it's not the the um, you know the, the chronology of it is it makes perfect sense in that we've, as you say, Joe, we've only seen the front end when they decide to stick their nose into other planets' business. They put this front up. That, oh yeah, we know exactly what we're almost godlike be- beings. Um, you know, we know exactly what we're doing. We're more powerful than you, so we're going to talk down to you all the time. It's a bit like the Watchers in um, in the Marvel comics, um, where they just you know they, they. But actually, behind the scenes, they're as flawed as anyone else, and they're all bickering between each other, and all always trying to get hold of power. That carries on through, doesn't it, as well? So it all makes perfect sense, really. You can't really sustain something like, you know, godlike beings mm. in the long term, especially on in a medium like television. But it also makes it's... more sense of why the Doctor left in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to, um, do you want to uh, hear something amusing? Go on, then. Go on, then. I have in front of me um, a PDF of... Um, hang on, let me just go up to the top of the PDF. Of TARDIS... 77, number four. Uh, TARDIS magazine, which was the fanzine or the uh, newsletter that was put out by the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. Issue number four was in 1977 and was the results of the season 14, or as they describe it actually, season 13, season poll. The results of the season poll for season 14. Would you like to know how the voting went? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before you uh, get to find out how the voting went, I'm just going to give you a little quote from the top of the PDF, of this page of the PDF, which might give you a little clue as to who it was who sent me this PDF so we could do a compare and contrast. And the uh, the little quote I'm going to give you is as follows. To decorate the way the voting went, Andrew Smith of Glasgow has transcribed <laughs> scenes from the top four shows. <laughs> Yep, that's Andrew Smith who wrote Full Circle and it was on our podcast last week and who, realising that we were going to do season 14, very kindly sent me this PDF of the results of their uh, season poll. Isn't that good of him? Really good. It's very kind Lovely. of him. Right. In sixth and bottom place came Robert Holmes' highly criticised story, The Deadly Assassin. <laughs> wow. Voted bottom. So this not just... Jan Vincent Rudsky's, um, you know, review of Deadly Assassin, its fandom as a whole reviled the Deadly Assassin. Amazing. Although you guys... uh, Oh, no, actually, in fifth place, would you like to guess what came fifth? Difficult. Fewer surprises from this point forwards, but... Hand? Uh, No, Face of Evil. I know Hand of Fear came third. Right. <laughs> that would be largely on account of it being Sarah Jane yeah. Smith's last story. Fourth place was The Mask of Mandragora, and the top two are exactly as. We uh, voted. You know, yeah, exactly, mm. quite. I mean, I know you said it's got a slightly duff ending, but. I mean, you've got a bat poop crazy master with ping pong balls for eyes. <laughs> you've got um, the whole regeneration thing that's kind of a pretty massive moment in the series history. Um, You've got that amazing imagery from the the whole stuff that goes on in the Matrix, which Mm. it still now is 
just amazing. You sit there and watch it and you just get really taken in by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a really good story. Well, the interesting thing about it is um, going back over the past sort of year and a half, maybe, which is where really this sort of pastiche of the hammer horrors, as people tend to think of it, but it's not really hammer horrors. There's like one hammer horror pastiche really in there, which of course is Pyramids of Mars, and the rest of them are... Oh no, maybe Brain of Morbius for the Frankenstein. Yeah. The rest of them are pastiches of movies from elsewhere. But they're all pastiches of horror movies, right? Mm. Mm. But Deadly Assassin is generally reckoned to be a pastiche of the Manchurian Candidate, candidate right? Yeah. Well, to be perfectly frank... Have you? Have, have any of you guys ever seen the Manchurian Candidate? No. I must be honest, I haven't. Isn't it supposed to be about a sleeper? It's right? about a sleeper agent who gets yeah. woke up. Yeah, and it's actually about the sleeper agent's training in the first place as mm. well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, how much exactly of the Deadly Assassin is about a sleeper agent? Mm. None. Zero. You know, absolutely none of it no. is about a sleeper agent. And, in fact, the first episode is deceptive because it makes it look yeah. like it's going to turn out to be that the Doctor that's was the a sleeper really agent. That's the only thing that really points you in that gets... direction, isn't it? But... So that's one episode. Mm. The curious thing is, and it's been years since I've watched it, so I can't give you the context completely, but there's a long section in the middle of The Manchurian Candidate uh, that's a bit like the long section in the middle of The Ipcris File. Where it's got all the hallucin- hallucinogenic stuff going on, right? Mm-hmm. Can you see where I'm going mm-hmm. with this? There's a long section in the middle, which is uh, largely about hallucinogenic sort of stuff going on. Yeah. Has it got a guy in a gas mask driving a toy train? <laughs> <laughs> Not too far off, mm. as I recall. It's, you know, the stuff on the, um, on this sort of operating table, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's not too far removed from that, if I remember rightly. Like I say, it's been years since I've watched it. I mean, the, and of course, it's got um, Castellan spandex. <laughs> yes, it has. The uh, in the Manchurian Candidate. No, the Deadly Assassin. <laughs> the uh, yeah, the yeah, Matrix yeah, yeah. is supposed to be the repository of all Time Lord knowledge, isn't it? Um, and, and experience. So you know, with the like you say, Mark, the little bloke driving the train and the, mm-hmm. the man with the pack horse and donkey and gas mask and all that business, it's kind of like what, 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 which one of those time lords gathered those memories? And I'd quite like to see him in a story somewhere. It sounds <laughs> like he sounds like a really interesting, wow. bizarre creature going out and finding all this. Don't forget, we we also found out <laughs> in the trial of time lord that they can go in and faff about with it and oh. alter it. Yeah. yeah, but also you have to say that, you know, if you put all the memories of all the members of your species into one single place, then unless you were going in looking for specific things, it would basically just be a jumble of memories, yeah, right? Yeah, all right. <laughs> you're absolutely <laughs> well, yeah. you're right. <laughs> it, it doesn't completely make sense, no. but the idea of a bit of a memory being an operating table yeah. and then another bit of somebody else's memory being a quarry. Exactly. And I another... mean, our memories, human memories aren't... Uh, it isn't a film, is it? It's a collection of They're snapshots. They're a jumble so... unless you access them. And if you've not got the... I mean, generally speaking, 
if you think about what your memories are, they're just a jumble of all sorts of different things. And the way you access them is by processing the bits you want and conjuring up, you know, the memories you need to access. Mm. You, in fact, your memory of how language works, for example. Mm. So if you've got a bunch of all sorts of different people's memories, then your method of accessing that would be a tool, a computer program. But if you're inside the matrix without that tool, without that computer program, yeah. you're just going to be lost in the jumble of memories. Mm. So it doesn't seem as illogical to me as it seems on the surface. No, no. And I've probably just retconned that away too. But <laughs> I don't know. I'm obviously in that kind of you're a mood You're gradually tonight. turning into Lee. Oh, my God. Oh, sweet Lord. That's probably because I'm eating too much. <laughs> no, I didn't mean that. That's but you've made that cruel. joke yourself, so I think it's fair game. Oh, fair game. Nice. Um, uh, just out of interest is um, that the film with Cindy Crawford in it if, if anybody out there in, <laughs> naked in the shower uh, anybody Ooh. out there in listener land uh, is listening to the podcast and it's February 2014 please go and have a look, look at JR's profile on Facebook it's the scariest profile you'll ever see <laughs> <laughs> I'm changing that before the weekend no. oh, better be quick. so it'll be gone <laughs> be... well it'll still be there as my last but one profile yeah, picture exactly Unless I delete it. I'll give you a clue. It's the smiling one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. Um, the story that came second. I have to say that I, I didn't actually count, but out of 20 people who voted, I think something like 15 of them had Deadly Assassin as third, 15 of them had this story as second, and 15 of them had the other story as this season pretty much polled itself, to be honest. Mm. The story that came second was... Wobots. <laughs> nice. Yes, the robots of death. They're famously thought of as Agatha Christie in space, right? Not really, though. It's not really. But it's close enough. Because, you know, uh, when people talk about these things, they talk about... I think people think about this series, this season in particular, season 14, as being Doctor Who being its most grown-up. But I don't think that's the case. And I think the biggest point about this season is that what it's doing really cleverly is appearing to be grown up, but for the kids. So you've got, and this is one example, but I think all six stories are pretty good examples. And, and I'm not going back to what I said before about it being horror stories for kids, right? I'm on a whole other level here. I'm talking about a different level entirely. This is Agatha Christie for kids. In which it appears to be a really intelligent, uh, you know, a really clever whodunit. And when you do a whodunit for grown-ups, you do a whodunit where you put a bunch of suspects in front of the grown-ups who are watching and ask them to try and work it out before the detective does. And at the end of the story, you reveal all, and if you didn't work it out, it suddenly makes sense. When you're six, you don't tend to do that. So if a whodunit for a six-year-old puts a bunch of people in front of, you know, the kid, the audience, and says, right, one of these people done it, and look, they did it with deadly robots. Mm. So by the time you're ten minutes into the story, you don't care who done it, you know that somebody done it, you find out at the end which one of them was who done it, but you don't spend the next 80 minutes trying to work out which one of them done it, you spend the next 80 minutes watching the scary robots killing people. 
And do you know what I mean? And that kind of logic works for all six stories in this series. That's what Robert Holmes did really cleverly. He made what looked like grown-up Doctor Who that was really Doctor Who for kids mm. that made them feel more grown-up because they were watching what they thought of as grown-up TV. Definitely. I watched this the other night, again, um, probably like the 18th time I've watched it, but... Um, mm. I, there's nothing. There's no waste. This is almost the perfect Doctor Who episode. There's no mm. waste in it. Everything there has to be there, um, and it's all absolutely brilliant. Even there's a few light-hearted moments which just make me guffaw. You know, uh, the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth, size of the brain, mm. and don't throw hands at me. Two fantastic kind of <laughs> comedy lines. But um, the whole thing just moves perfectly. It's got the right pace. It's got the right rhythm. It's tightly scripted. It's perfectly acted. Um, I love all the characters in it. They've all got real characters and real backstories that are just kind of edging out into the script. Um, and the only thing that possibly would let it down nowadays are the effects. I mean, my son watched it and said, oh, that's a rubbish effect. But that's all mm. he can say about it. The rest of it, he said, the, you know, the robots are brilliant. They're the Ood. The costume said, yes, design is superb. Plainly, they're the Ood, yeah. Um, the costume design, and it, it's one of those, this was the one that sent me out to the kitchen when I was a kid. This is the one I remember the most. It's my first real memory. So it should really be up there at the top on my list, but it, it was edged to second. Um, mm. But they keep juggling, you know, I, I can juggle those two talons in this one, uh, uh, first and second place forever, because I can't really decide. But I think Robots is just, it's the memory for me. Scary as, scary as anything, but beautifully, beautifully played out all the way through, start to finish. You, you were saying earlier that um, a lot of the, the stories stand out for you because you've got those moments that mm. kind of live in the memory. And I think this has got a lot of those. You mentioned before about don't throw hands at me. There's that other moment where he's saying, I heard a cry. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the doctor's going, it was me. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant, isn't it? Creepy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, and, and, some... and the lance, the probe's going into the head and things like that. Mm. Ooh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of the deaths, the first deaths we see as well. You know, uh, will you give me a hand? And the robot comes and kills him. <laughs> yeah. And, and know, the sayward hand, actually makes an appearance doesn't it the bloody hand <laughs> mm. and also there's this scene where um leela finds out that the robot is supposed to be dumb can talk but she doesn't realize he's not supposed to be able to talk until afterwards and then there's that whole hang on he can talk thing you know it's all be it's beautifully written yeah. and beautifully played and it's kind of clever but at the same time just really obvious and it's almost the obvious thing about it that makes it so clever. Because when you're writing something, as you guys will no doubt know now, having written for the 12 Doctors of Christmas, mm. when you're writing something, it's not always easy to realise that the obvious way to do something is the best way. Yeah. You know, it's the obvious way for a reason. Mm. And, you know, you don't... Un unless you're telling a story that's deliberately complicated, you don't complicate your simple story unless you have very good reason to do so. And obviously they threw in the lovely Pamela Salem, who is guaranteed <laughs> to be a really good story if she's in it. Uh, she was good. Mm -hmm. the, another another quick thing from me um, is, this, like I said, about the society, uh, that the people have got backstories. They've got a really good, interesting society idea that we don't really mm. see. But, you know, it's, it's Isaac Asimov, right, straight out of Asimov's universe, perfectly. Um, caves, caves are still, that sort of thing. But the great thing, because it's such a good, solid society idea, they brought it back for Caldor City, for, uh, I think it's Big Finish, wasn't it, that released a whole load. Uh, oh, there's kind of books serious and dramas audios and, and all sorts of things. fantastic, brilliant. 
Well, yeah, and this is, I, I, this is one of the things that people say about the robots of death that they don't really say about Image of the Fendal or the Face of Evil. But I think Chris Boucher did just as good a job on those two other stories. In the Face of Evil, the society of the primitives is so well delineated, and each of the people within that setup that we get to meet you know their place within that setup is so well defined and so well written so as it's not something that needs telling to the audience but that the audience can see through the characters it's brilliant writing and he does the same again in image of the fendal with the backstories of the scientists and yet because those two you know, are slightly different in that one of them is a primitive society, so the writing doesn't appear as clever because he doesn't put, you know, intelligent dialogue into the characters' mouths. And then in Image of the Fendal, because they're humans, so he's just giving regular humans a regular backstory, you don't appreciate that he's actually done just as good work as he does in The Robots of Death. But Chris Boucher is brilliant for that. He is... You know, when Robert Holmes found him, and it was a pity it was so late in, uh, you know, Robert Holmes' time on the series, but when Robert Holmes found Chris Boucher, he used him for pretty much every other story that he did from that point onwards. You know, of the last seven, uh, of the last seven um, Robert Holmes stories, three of them are written by Chris Boucher. And three of them are written by Robert Holmes, and you've just got the Bob Baker, Dave Martin one in between. Mm-hmm. Can I, um, oh, and the Terrence Sticks. <clears throat> sorry, sorry. Um, yeah. Can I just say, myself, coming back to something that Mark said, he was saying about the design of the robots. Um, I don't think we should underestimate the power of design. In as much, uh, the only design that tends to p- people go on about, you know, what amazing design is the Daleks, but it's not just the Daleks. You think of the Cybermen as well, but also these robots. I don't think you can under, underestimate how important it is to get the right design of these creatures. Mm, yeah. If you think about, I, you know, if you think about something like Star Wars, if the design of those characters and those creatures at that time hadn't been right, I do wonder whether it would have picked up in the same way as it did. And I think, uh, just like Mark said, is that part of these iconic images that people remember is because of the strength of the design. Those robots... I think they're all the more unsettling because they are beautiful to look at yeah they're obviously very creepy and i I think i'm going to be more aware of it now i mean i've always been aware of it because i'm I'm that way inclined but you know um interestingly jl this week you've been putting a thing on facebook about your top 10 figures that you would like to own or the top 10 figures you know that That i do own yeah the plastic figures and one you said that you would like to own is the handbot and i think that is a design classic of doctor who as well the handbot from um Mm. Uh, girl who waited. girl who waited. Yeah, I was thinking Amy's Choice. Don't know why. Yeah, yeah, and and things like that, and just just certain ones. There are other ones that don't work as well. Um, but with robots, robots of death. That that is probably the thing. The first thing I think of is the design of the robots. Yeah, I mean the clever thing is about that particular design is a, it's reflecting society again that they're in. So it's like this Art Deco thing, and they're, they're all wearing costumes and outfits that reflect that kind of design. And also they've got this lovely pencil mark going over their faces, which you know now looks a little bit cheesy. But you think no, okay, in the future they might be doing this with their design faces or whatever. So it it works beautifully. But the androgynous metro, uh, you know, metropolis kind of look of the robots. 
are so uh, what's the word? You know, when when you look at them, you can't tell. You can't tell what's behind the mask. There's, it really feels like a robot. There are actors in there, but at no point, whenever I've watched it, have I thought that. Um, and the eyes turn red, and that's it. You're scared. The thing's coming at you with a, a bloody needle, which is a horrible thing anyway. And that's it. You're scared. I am anyway. <laughs> and there's this lovely moment, isn't there? This beautiful comedy moment with Leela at the end, who's squeaking in the cupboard. Come out, little mouse, he says, and all this sort of business. Oh, yeah. It's lovely. lovely. Well, that goes back to what I was saying before about it being a grown-up thing for kids. Mm. You know, instead of the revelation of who did it, instead you've got a scene where you get the villain by, you know, releasing some helium gas and making his voice go all squeaky. Absolute genius ending. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's just, it's ridiculous, and it's... The kind of thing that a five-year-old might have written. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, we'd better get to the last one, because, Lee, you've got to dash off, really. So, um, well, we all know what's number one now. So do you want to quickly have a few words before you run away? Yeah, I mean, without spoiling it for everybody else and just sitting here for an hour talking about how amazingly bloody brilliant this is. Um, it's Talons of Wing Chiang, and... Again, everything about this, to me, is perfect. I don't feel anything is wasted. Um, it's a pastiche of Sherlock Holmes, sure. And the BBC have done a great job because they've got that kind of costume department. They've got that weight behind them for the, you know, doing classics and things. So already you're on a winning streak just with looking at it. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, the script is brilliant. The, du- the double act of Jago and Lightfoot <coughs> and Mr. Sin, all these creations are so perfect and brilliant and a, a, a long-lasting Jago and Lightfoot of course have got their own big finish so we know they're good strong characters so you know for me personally this is a very strong um, Victorian again it's a very strong story that's stuck with me all these years um, and uh, I remember seeing it uh, kind of glimpses of it but not the whole thing in its original form and uh, yeah it, it stuck with me forever and it's just classic, classic Doctor. It's what everybody loves, isn't it? They want this episode to be every Doctor Who. And uh, anyway, I, I tip my hat to it. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for all the fish. I'm off. Bye-bye. <laughs> Good night, Lee. All right. Uh, with Lee disappearing, I do have a couple of quibbles. Shall I come back to the quibbles in a minute? Uh, do you guys want to give me an opinion on Talons of Wang Jiang first? Go on, um, yeah, I won't say a lot apart from the fact that it absolutely oozes flavour. <laughs> absolutely mm. oozes something. Um, and you can almost smell the smell of Victorian London. A lot of it is down to the, the BBC wardrobe that department. That would be that massive, massive um, load of hay in the street. Yeah, yeah. It's covering up the sports <laughs> but, but it is, but everything about it, the tone of it, it's all lots of browns and... And again, it's the design. Oh, I love Leela's outfit as well. And and there's another thing I was going to say is that I don't think it would have been the same story with Sarah Jane as the companion. There's that lovely no. juxtaposition of you know this savage in Victorian London. And well, I think that was pretty much the starting point for the story, really. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's the fact that you know what they wanted to do was put those two completely opposite things. In contact and see what happened, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, 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 you've got a time travel in Victorian London, and um, there's this Pygmalion. Yeah, but there's there's also there's got to be got to be some inspiration for um, Stephen Moffat sticking the Doctor 
you know, when the Doctor in the most recent series decides to go AWOL to a certain extent and, and sets up shop somewhere, where does he set up shop? In Victorian London. Because it's that thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's just... This has been said right from the start that the Doctor's... You know, Doctor Who is a sort of Victorian adventurer. Yeah. Lost in time, really. Mm-hmm. One of the bigger inspirations for the series. You know, books like The Time Machine are a far bigger influence on Doctor Who than, say, like, uh, you know, films of the 1950s, sci-fi films in the 1950s. Much more, Doctor Who's much more influenced by Wells and Verne than it is by, you know, George Powell, <laughs> for want of uh, a better example. Mm, mm. Mark, Talons of Wang Chiang. It's a beautiful story. It's everything that the BBC does it does best. It's costume drama um, with a sci-fi twist. Um, the I suppose looking at it now with 21st century eyes, the idea of having a, a white actor playing an Asian part is a bit weird. But I suppose because I've grown up with it, I just kind of take it at face value. Pardon the pun. Well, um, we'll get on to that subject in a moment, yeah. I think. Um, this one is a bit of a weird one in our household because my wife is a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes um, and she loves all that sort of type of drama. I know it's not uh, a straight sort of Holmes spoof, but she really can't stand it and she really likes Tom Baker as well as the Doctor. Well, that's kind of odd. I've got the opposite thing going on here. Mm. But there you go. I think she uh, finds the dialogue a bit um, over the top at times. Ah, oh, but it's so beautifully written, so mm. richly written, and so beautifully played. I I, I love it, but um, I've yet to convince her. I think tonight was about our third attempt to try and get her to oh, see really? what was so great about it. But yeah, mm. she laughed at the rat. She liked that. Uh, that. That was the last thing that I don't, you don't know whether the microphone picked up as Lee was walking out the door. He said, "Ignore the rat." <laughs> oh, look on the subject of the racist aspect. This was 1976 well, yeah, when it was being yeah. written. And it wasn't as big an issue then. In fact, it wasn't really an issue at all, was it? Let's be honest. We're talking a very short period of time after, you know, Love Thy Neighbour and, hmm. uh, you know, all sorts of other things. It ain't half hot, like Mum. Well, indeed. In fact, it ain't half hot, Mum carried on for several years after mm. Talents of Wen Chiang had been on TV. Mm. People think. Oh, it's out of time, but change was already coming. Change didn't really come for another half a decade later. Not really. Some attitudes were changing, but not all of them. But I think the point with this is, and this was mentioned on the excellent Writer's Room podcast, but I think they slightly missed the point. I think this is the trouble with having an American perspective on a British programme. You might like it or you might not like it. You might be able to see what works from a writer's perspective and you might be able to see what doesn't work from a writer's perspective. But what you can't do is have the experience of having lived in the country at the time that it was yeah, created. And so you kind of miss the point. And the point for me is not so much that it's racist. I don't think it is. I just think it's, yeah. it's of its time, isn't it? But what it doesn't do is address any of those issues, which it might. Mm. But I... Th because... I mean, it wasn't you know, that long after the... that you had a, a show, The Chinese Detective, which had 
a leading Asian actor. Um, David. Only a year or two after that, was it? David Yip. David Yip, yeah. David Yip, yeah. Mm. So it wasn't that long after... Do you know what I think? Things start to change, but yes. Yeah, I think I didn't get to my point. Sorry, go on. Go on. Sorry, <laughs> go, go on. Carry on. I was going to say that one of the criticisms is not that it's racist, but that it doesn't address the issue, mm. and that it allow. But and people say, okay, it's a pastiche. You can see why it's doing it, but it's to just it should still address the issue. The Doctor is a character who goes to alien planets and says all aliens are equal until one of them proves himself to be a villain, in which case he gets taken down, right? Mm -hmm. So he should have the same attitude to all the characters, you know, in an Earth-set Doctor Who story. So why does he not treat the Chinese the same way he treats the English? And yeah, okay, as a pastiche. I think the reason it's not addressed is that if you were telling that story that's a pastiche of Fu Manchu and Sherlock Holmes and Pygmalion and all those other things, if you're going to address that it would unbalance that scene so that that scene would stick out like a sore thumb yeah. in the rest of the story it's not so much that you couldn't put a scene in where the doctor said oh no but the chinese are the same as all the rest of us we shouldn't be behaving like this towards the chinese within the fiction it wouldn't really within the fiction work. that would just come over as really patronizing mm. and so i think in some ways i think it's better without it because if you put it in, it just serves to highlight the rest of it more. Mm-hmm. You've just got to get on and either enjoy it or not. But I don't think you should bring it up on those things when, you know, at the heart of the story is a almost a redemption for Lee Sen Chang. Yeah. Because he, the bad things he does, he's being made to do. And when he's freed from the influence that's making him do the bad things... He, well, he he goes off and takes his own life, but, you know, the story point for his character is not that he takes his own life. The story point is that he can't live having done the things that yeah. he was made to do, yeah. even though he wasn't responsible for those things because he was under somebody else's control. So for me, that's a very sympathetic character mm. and uh, also a very realistic way to treat, you know, the way that you're getting the audience to sympathise with that character. Simon, did you have something you wanted to say? Sorry, yeah. Because now I've kind of bulldozed <coughs> all me. over it, haven't I? No, no, it's fine. Um, I just wanted to. I don't want to spend too long on on the subject about the racism anymore because it's such a dodgy. It's always thin ice, isn't it? And somebody's always ready to leap on you for it. But um, mm. I was going to say the whole thing with a, a European actor playing uh, an Oriental role. Um, it's it's almost a tr- tradition thing coming through. I mean, I. I don't know a huge amount of it, but I'm thinking about characters like Fu Manchu and things like that, you know, in, in old Hammer horror. Well, it's and kind things. of. It's, it's almost it's like a, a pantomime thing, isn't joke. it? joke. Yeah. Yes. Um, in the same way as you always have a girl playing Peter Pan. It's, it's almost like saying we're setting it at a certain period of time, so we're going to actually use the conventions of that period of time. It's almost a slightly postmodern joke. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but if you're going to get make think they've got to make a point about it i mean surely it's, it's a lot of the time it's about having the right actor as well you could i don't uh, the mandarin being played by ben kingsley in the the last iron man movie i mean well the celestial toy maker being played by michael goff yes, in 1966 absolutely or ben kingsley again playing gandhi i mean yeah you could argue so why wasn't mm. an indian actor mm. 
cast in that role. Yes, and that was post-Talons of Wang Chang. Shall we move along? Yeah, yeah moving away from that whole nest of Absolutely. Right. Can I just I've say a, oh, go one on, quick thing? What an incredible creation the Peking homunculus is. It's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. we were talking about stuff that lives in the memory. The first oh, time it's... we watched that as a kid, it's just, it just freaks you right out, and it's just brilliant. Was that in your it's... top ten figures, Jaya? Uh, it was in my top ten figures I never... I did two top tens. I did top tens of ones that I really like and I'm really glad to own and I did a top 10 of ones that are just the kind of odd things that you'd never actually have pinned down for being an action figure and Mr Sin was in those really <laughs> well it's just but, uh, but on the subject of Mr Sin it is utterly utterly illogical makes no sense whatsoever oh absolutely you, but you put a works. pig in a dummy, and not only does it come to life, it starts walking around and talking and killing yeah. people. Ridiculous. And yet, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant and balmy and beautiful and absolutely perfect. And, oh my God, absolutely terrifying when you're a kid. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, by that time, I was slightly older, I think eight or seven and a half, mm. by which time... You know, Doctor Who was starting to not scare me anymore. And my God, Mr. Sin, that enough <laughs> put the shivers up. It's <laughs> almost up there with clowns, isn't it? Ventriloquist dummies is, is nearly there. Mm. Oh, yeah. Ugh. So a bit of a rant to finish on. Oh. Well, since we've been talking about six of the best, you know, we've got to have a rant in there somewhere, haven't we? If you must. Mm. Okay, it's not a rant about the stories. It's a rant about people who use the expression... Robert Holmes double acts. Robert Holmes didn't write double acts. Robert Holmes wrote characters whose dialogue was so beautiful and that was played by such brilliant actors. He gave them people to talk to. That's what he did. <sighs> you know, Jago and Lightfoot, they're only in the story together for about 15 minutes. And for most of it, Jago's talking to... I can't remember his name. What's the factotum who works in the theatre? Oh. You know... And Lightfoot's talking to Leela yeah. for four and a half of the episodes, four of the episodes or whatever. He doesn't write double acts. He writes characters. And if you're going to write a television programme, you have to give your actors someone to talk to. <laughs> which would be a second-in-command or somebody to work with or whatever. It's, it's become this thing that Robert Holmes writes these double acts when really all he's doing is just writing standard television. He's just so good at it. He makes those characters so memorable that the fact that they're talking to somebody sits in your memory so well, you remember them and that person, and then it becomes a double act in the way you think about it. It's not a double act in the way it's written. Let's face it, it takes two people to have a conversation, doesn't it? Exactly. So anyway, there's my little rant to finish. Excellent. And relax. <laughs> um, either of you two guys interested in what we're doing next week? Go on. Yeah, what what we're doing. Would you like to tell me what we're doing next week? Oh. We're all going on holiday. Are you? Yeah. Does that mean you're not going to be around for the podcast? No, all of us. We're all going on holiday and doing like a, oh, a, okay. uh, a recording overseas. <laughs> Are we going to talk about foreign stories, foreign location shooting yeah. in Doctor Who? 
So um, okay. who's off to Lanzarote Actually, then? we weren't. Actually, we weren't. But do you want to? Because we didn't have a plan for next week. I'm sure the guys at Starburst will, uh, will fund that. Yeah. Okay. So we need to go to Australia to talk about uh, the enemy of the world. No actual foreign location shooting, Mark. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. It was right. in Australia? Of course it was. Not in right. Devon or somewhere? Right, okay. Are we sending Until Lee then... to a quarry? Yeah. Okay. He didn't say no. No, he didn't. Until then, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Uh, way to go with the funnies at the end there, guys. Mm. Um, mm. Oh, and before I completely forget, it's week three of Knox Box. Grant Knox's journey back through the uh, Stephen Moffat years. Um, well, I haven't got the others with me now, so there'll be no, uh, no jingle at the start and at the end, I'm afraid. But Grant's watched three more stories this week, so let's hear what he had to say about them. On The Hungry Earth and Cold Blood, he said, A lazy story with poor performances all round. Karen Gillan and the supporting cast are awful, but I do like the new Silurians, Rory's death plotline and the exploding TARDIS. Low point of the rewatch so far. On Vincent and the Doctor, an average story that gets away with it with a beautiful final ten minutes. Good but not great for me. The Lodger. Didn't really work for me this time. I think I liked it more before. I did like the other Silence TARDIS set. A disappointing run of stories for me. I agree with JR about it being all over the place tone-wise. My first real wobble with the rewatch. Hoping the two-part finale can bring me back on track. And that's what Grant had to say about the three stories this week. I guess in the next episode we'll find out what he thought of the uh, Pandorica opens in the Big Bang and uh, maybe also we'll have a short review of Series 5 as a whole so that's also something else to look forward to next week <laughs>